Edmund Nielsen Woodwinds has been serving the Double Reed community for 70 years. Nielsen sells a wide variety of oboe, oboe de mort, English horn, bassoon, and contrabassoon reeds and cane, as well as reed-making accessories, reed cases, and lafrex. And of course, they have the classic Nielsen wedge knife, which features a double hollow ground with a choice of handle size. In addition, they have many other knives available. Nielsen has long been known for their large heckle bassoon vocal inventory. Fill out their online trial form to start a trial and find the perfect heckle vocal for you. For all your double reed accessories, Nielsen is ready to help you. Hey bassoonists, are you looking to ramp up your reed making? Well, Barton Kane has the solution for you. They offer over 60 variations of precision gouged shaped and profiled bassoon cane. Use coupon code free shipping for orders over $150. This includes international orders. Go shop now at www.bartoncane.com. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish. A podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. You have some very exciting news. I do have some very exciting news. Oh my God. (laughs) I have been keeping my lips zipped for way too long. Can you please, can you please just tell, just tell us, please, please. (laughs) I have accepted a position for fall 2020. I'll be starting as the assistant professor of bassoon and theory at Washington State University. Oh my God. Congratulations, girl. Thank you. I'm super excited because I think we've mentioned on the podcast before, but I am Eastern Washington born and raised. So this position, Mm -hmm. it's not only professionally ideal because I get to focus on the bassoon now. I get to be at a research institution, which I've been really wanting, but also I'm two hours away from nearly all of my family and very close to basically everything that is culturally, personally important to me. And uh, I get to go home. And for a lot of us in higher ed and in orchestral playing, you know, music takes us far away and that's wonderful, but we have to choose between significant amounts of time with our people and our art. And I don't have to do that anymore. And I'm very, very, very lucky. That is so wonderful. I'm so happy for you and so proud of you. And when you told me, it's like the universe, it's wonderful. I'm so happy for you. Thank you. And that's, you're touching on a point I did want to make sure to make, um, because without getting, you know, too specific, I had a couple of no's that preceded this wonderful, very big personal yes, that were very hard for me to take and bounce back from. And uh, at the time, it was very hard for me to see the forest through the trees and that you just have to be patient and keep working and the opportunity that is meant for you will come. And so if someone's listening who's dealing with some no's and having a hard time with the 
rejection aspect of what we do, which is a natural but very tough part of what we do. Um, just be patient because even though it was very hard for me to not get those opportunities, it's only because I didn't that I got this one that is the most perfect fit I could conjure up in a lab. So uh, <laughs> hang in there. It's the power of the universe. And another thing I want to say, and I'm about to get on my soapbox, but I don't mind. What I'm leaving is a double reads position. And I would just like to make the disclaimer, speak kindly to people who are working double reads positions, please. Yes, please. Because I, over the past five years, have gotten some comments that were very undermining, hurtful, assumptive. And there are people like me who are working double read jobs, working toward um, a different goal. There are some people who are working in double read jobs because that's exactly what they trained for and that's exactly what they want to do. And mm -hmm. no one working a double read job is less than those who can do, those who can't do this. Let's just stop. I don't think that's necessarily a pervasive narrative, but it's one that I encountered a few very hurtful times. And so I am just going to say, let's put the kibosh. Everyone rules. Everyone who's on this path is doing their best. Let's just celebrate each other and not mm -hmm. mess with each other's mojo. Okay. <laughs> and I, I think it's worth saying that anybody who has any kind of job in this field is a rock star. I totally agree. Totally agree. Because, you know, jobs are hard to get and anyone who gets anything deserves props. So lots of love for all of the people, you know, working and seeking work out there because it's, it's rough out there. <laughs> it is rough. There's more supply than demand. So, you know, yeah, mm -hmm. if someone's doing their thing, high five them, celebrate them and uh, only nice comments, please. <laughs> Uh, okay. There, I'll step off my soapbox now. What are we mm -hmm. dishing about? Oh, wait. Well, how have things been for you? Well, things have been a little bit uh, cuckoo crazy. <laughs> um, I just got in yesterday. My parents had a little bit of a family emergency. So I was in North Carolina for a few days and things are on the up. Just, you know, as you get older, you're going to have to wrap your parents in bubble wrap. Like, just <laughs> just get, like, an extra large roll and just wrap both of them up. Get them nice and cozy. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's just been a little bit wild, you know. My shout, huge shout-out to my mom, who is doing an amazing job recovering from a pretty bad fall. She is the strongest person I know, and... It's watching her, you know, go through pain, but also push through the pain. It's really inspiring. And, uh, you know, love your parents. Keep them out of attics. <laughs> no, we're very lucky. She's going to be fine. And it, it's another layer of why I'm so happy for you because, you know, you're so much closer to home now. You know, I drove 12 hours yesterday coming back from North Carolina and you get to be two hours away. And that is such a blessing. I think you're just going to have the most wonderful experience growing your roots back home. Yes. I'm ready to kind of be in one place and uh, I'm, I'm happy, but you know, I don't know if you heard, but there's kind of this event going on in Iowa city. Oh, really? Summer. What? What event? 
Oh, maybe you've heard of it. It's the um, 2020 International Double Read Society Conference in Iowa City, hosted by the University of Iowa, my beloved alma mater, of which I am <laughs> proud alumni. <laughs> Don't get her started about the Hawkeyes. I have so much love for that school, and I know that Ben and Courtney are going to put on the most fire conference ever. I'm so excited to go. Flames. Yes. And so we thought it would be a cool dish topic to talk about our favorite IDRS conference memories. Well, I want to hear yours, and I hope that I'm in them, Jackie. <laughs> <laughs> There's a wrong answer here. <laughs> well, I'm thinking, how many did I go to? And I've been to, I believe, three. Uh, no, four. That's right. I've been to four. I... <laughs> played in that um, ill-fated Frank Morelli masterclass at the University of Oklahoma where my shirt first <laughs> opened. LOL. <laughs> yeah. I believe that's episode three. If you don't know what I'm referring to, I'm not going to relive that story again. Thank you very much. So I don't think that that was my favorite. And then um, I was at IDRS Redlands, and it was a very short trip in and out. I didn't get to quite enjoy. So I think my favorite would be 2015, I believe it was, in Columbus, Georgia. Was that 2015? Yeah, that was 2015. That was my first IDRS ever. It was my, it, for all intents and purposes, it would have been mine because it was the first time that I just bought a full five day pass stayed and allowed myself to really enjoy the conference as a whole, not just I'm going to go in and, and do what I'm here for and then leave. I mm -hmm. made it a point to talk to people, hang out, really spend time in the vendor area, watch people perform. I was really a attendee at the conference the first time. And the amount of ugh, just inspiration that you get when you're there, the new friends that you make. It's, it was like, oh, this is why everyone says it's magic and uh, so exciting. And so I think that 2015 conference and just kind of getting that whole experience in the big picture is kind of my favorite. I know that's not very specific, but sorry. <laughs> sorry about it. Sorry. <laughs> what about you? <laughs> Um, well, like, like I said, the 2015 one in Columbus was my first one and not only my first one attending, but my first one performing at, and I got to perform with you and our friend Corey Mackey. And it was just the most wonderful. It was just wonderful to do that with you guys, you know, cause we're so close and it was, you know, it was just really special and I just love those conferences for all of the different people that you get to meet and develop friendships with and put the faces to the names and the reputations. And, you know, it's, that was my favorite part was playing and then like meeting people says the extrovert. <laughs> <laughs> Well, th that's what I will say is there's a great vibe to IDRS where even for those of us more mm -hmm. introverted, it's such a friendly, welcoming environment that it is easy to meet new people and converse. And it's, I just find it to be a natural, friendly, kind of organic environment, which is awesome. Because what I've mm -hmm. heard is other instruments do not have the same experience. I'm looking at you, flutes. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I will also say that um, last year, 
2019 in Tampa was the next one that I went to. And I also convinced my student, Erin, to volunteer. So I actually got to experience the the conference through her eyes. Mm. And she was able to perform in a couple of master classes. And it was so cool to to see kind of everything for the first time again and to go to the concerts and like look for her in the audience and imagine like, oh my God, she's getting to see Sherry Seiler live. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like she's getting to see Catherine Needleman live. Like th- it was so cool. And also she brought me coffee every single day. Erin, my queen, I will be forever grateful. Oh yeah. Because I wouldn't have made it. So of course... This is not all about us. Jackie. Oh, forgive me. (laughs) Um, And we asked our listeners uh, what some of their favorite memories are of IDRS conferences. And we got this beautiful one from Emily Prohaska. And it came even with a picture commemorating the moment. Emily says, I bought my Fox 601 at the 2014 conference in New York City. My teacher at the time, Dr. Kristen Schillinger, helped me select it. I remember moments after the final decision. I was so excited. I think we both teared up a bit. And then on our Facebook feed, you can see this photo of Emily just looking so deliriously happy with her new bassoon. It's wonderful. I got my bassoon at the Redlands conference as well. And it is just going around and trying a bunch and then finding your voice and getting to walk away Mm. with it. Oh, that's an awesome feeling. We got another submission from Sean Reynolds. It was Banff 2002. I had intended on playing in the small group reading sessions, which were a blast. I had only brought my English horn. Mr. Kilmer, Richard Kilmer, was assigned to our group of four for two sessions. He needed someone else to play oboe instead of English horn. So on the spot, lent me his personal oboe to play for three days of the session. He didn't know me from Adam. What a kind, wonderful, amazing teacher he is. I learned so much from him over those two sessions. I ended up playing the larger double reed choir on oboe as well using his instrument. Embedded in my memory were his generosity and music. What a beautiful tribute. Thank you, Sean. I'm sorry. I think that's the coolest story ever. That is so cool. (laughs) Excuse me, world famous pedagogue. Can I borrow your horn? (laughs) Yeah. That's like the making of conference legend. Like, you know, that is just the coolest experience. On Mm -hmm. Instagram, Rachel says, IDRS 2011 got me my first job. I couch surfed at an ASU student's apartment who years later introduced me to another oboist who, through a funny series of events, got me work in a professional orchestra abroad. I'm really thankful for the conferences. Well, I should say so. And so is your electric bill. Wow. Pay with the (laughs) oboe. Thanks, IDRS. (laughs) That is such a success story. That's amazing. And Nancy Belmont says, last year's conference, IDRS 2019, for me, since it was in Florida where I grew up and went to college, my middle school, high school, college, and grad school bassoon teachers were all in attendance for the recital I gave. That was so special for me. I should say so. That's phenomenal. I don't know if anyone really gets that experience typically. 
That's super special. And I was at that recital and she found it awesome. So. Oh yeah. Same. (laughs) Nancy, that's beautiful. So as you're listening is the final day of our IDRS giveaway, because these experiences are so amazing that we want our listeners to be able to experience IDRS 2020. We don't want to just keep these memories for ourselves. We want to make some memories this summer. That's right. Be sure to, if it's before five o'clock, you can still submit really quickly when this episode is released. Otherwise, (laughs) check out tomorrow, Monday the 2nd, when we will announce the two winners of our IDRS giveaway who get to attend on our dime, at least in part. Help us help you. Send in those submissions. We can't wait to read them. Cool. We'll see you in Iowa City and uh, smell you later. (laughs) Chemical City Double Reads is a full-service double read shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Read Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana or online at www.chemicalcityreads.com. Do you have the empty read case blues? Well, luckily for you, Singing Dog Double Reads is an online double read shop and one of the largest suppliers of high quality and affordable professional and student reads for oboe and bassoon in the USA. Please visit us at www.singindog.com to see all of our products and fill up that read case. We are absolutely thrilled to welcome Sophie Dervaux, principal bassoon of the Vienna State Opera Orchestra and the Vienna Philharmonic. Welcome, Sophie. Thanks. Hi. I would love to start by asking you how you started playing the bassoon. Ah, that's a good question. Um, I actually started to play the guitar and then the clarinet. And uh, while playing the clarinet, I... uh, I just met some bassoonists and I found it really cool. And uh, I have a little brother. He wanted to to start an instrument and uh, he asked me to come with him to a bassoon presentation. And uh, I tried the instrument and I said, okay, I want to learn it. And it was about 15 years ago, long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you become serious about the bassoon can you talk us through your educational journey as you were embarking on becoming a professional yeah so uh, I started at the age of of 12 and uh, actually quite soon I I just wanted to to learn it uh, really well and maybe to make it my profession I think when I was 16 17 it became really really serious and I started to study and since since then, yeah, it was clear I want to be a bassoonist. I studied in Lyon uh, with Carlo Colombo three years, and then I went uh, to Berlin to study at the Karajan Academy of the Berlin Philharmonic, and uh, to study at the university in Berlin with Volker Tessmann. Uh, after that, I won the audition for contribution at the Berlin Phil. I did two years there and then I applied for the position at the Vienna State Opera and uh, yeah in 2015 and since then I played there. 
I would love to hear about your experience in winning your job, the process that you went through in preparing and also just the experience in uh, achieving that. Uh, I'm a bit crazy. So if I prepare something, I just do it full, uh, fully. I'm sorry for my English. I just try. <laughs> no, your English is perfect. We're sorry for our French. No, 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 yeah, no, no. Better than mine. <laughs> try to express myself. Let's, let's see. Um, the most time I really, uh, I really wanted to win an audition. I just prepared the same way, like really one month without doing anything else or just if I had to make some concerts, I did, but just focus on the, on the audition and, and I had nothing else in my head. So it was really just practicing and sports and eating and, and that's it. And maybe I practiced like, like six or seven hours a day for one month. I can't do it more. Uh, you become crazy. So it was really only for one month, three weeks to, to one month. And then I focused mostly on the, on the orchestral excerpts. I mean, in Europe, you also, you always have Mozart to play, sometimes Weber, but this is something I knew from my uh, studies. But the orchestra accepts, I think this is really the most difficult thing. And I just spent hours and hours to practice it, to be sure uh, to be the best as possible for me uh, on the on the D-Day. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, thought, uh, I, I also did something, maybe it helped, I just listened to the recording of the orchestra I was applying to, to have the, an idea of, of the sound and to know the, the way they, they play. And so for Vienna, for example, when I, uh, I prepared the audition, I was just listening recording from Vienna Field one month before and uh, nothing else, just to, to try to, to play in the style. And Berlin, it was a bit easier because I was, I was uh, in the academy before, so I knew, I knew a bit more what sound they expect. Yeah, but I don't have any secret. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's amazing how that works. <laughs> what was the audition day like? Could you talk us through that process of, you know, the rounds? and? Yeah, yeah. Um, I was invited directly to the main audition. I don't know how it works in the US, but in Europe you have pre-selection audition and you have the main audition. So pre-selection is for students or people who have a, a position, but not, not really a, a good one or not, a, not the same level as uh, the position they want to have. And on the main, main audition, you have professional and people who have really a good, a good, uh, position. Yeah, the, the pre-selection was about, I don't know, 40 people and they played three rounds. And the next day, uh, it was a main audition. I came directly to the main audition. I think we were like 15 people playing four rounds. I can't remember exactly what I played, but um, Mozart I played for sure. And a lot of orchestral excerpts. I remember it was in uh, at 9.30 in the morning and I thought it's 9.30, the meeting point, point but it was... Uh, beginning of the audition and people were uh, supposed to come earlier and I came at 9.30 and I took the number two so I had to play really, really fast but actually it was really good because I had a few minutes to, to warm up and then, and then I played and it was better for, for the head I think not so much stress at the beginning and then the stress came <laughs> <laughs> In the waiting, the winning, I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. Uh, actually, 
we were all the finalists in a room and then um, some, someone from the staff came to us and said, okay, the jury uh, had, uh, decided to take someone and, uh, and he told me that I, I want to audition just in this small room with these four other finalists. And I remember I, I, I was there and I just say, oh, I have to hug someone. <laughs> Please give me a hug. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, a finalist Clements, but he said, "Okay, just come and I give him a hug." And uh, I didn't know him very well, but since it's yeah, it was a nice moment. And, and then I, I went to the audition hall where the big jury was uh, waiting, and they did a, an official announcement. But uh, they saw me came in, in and they said, "Ah, you already know." <laughs> <laughs> They could see it on my face, and I really couldn't believe it. Uh, I was I was not expecting that at all. So it was, yeah. And then I, I remember when I when I called my husband, I just said yes, and he was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> "That sounds amazing." Yeah, it was. It was at the beginning really a horrible day, you know, audition days. It's it's just horrible for everybody, and then at the end, it was really nice, but. It's a bit confusing, all the feelings together. I would love to ask you a follow-up question about your preparation leading up to the audition day. You said there are no secrets. There's no magic. You practiced your butt off. (laughs) I would love for you to say more about what that entailed. What kind of practice did you do? Yeah, First, when when I start to practice, it's it's always the same thing. Not not only for the audition, but I really like the low practicing because um, I like to fix everything in the details in uh, in quite relaxed, so really slow. Yeah, I had something like twenty orchestral excerpts, and I did two really really like crazy in one day, and there was a one I just played it then every day, of course, but but not really in details and. And I uh, I did a lot of uh, metronome practicing, for example, for all all the fast uh, stuff, uh, just to be sure I play perfectly clean. I did a lot of uh, tuner, also just to 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 play in as if to have a, the perfect pitch. And I think intonation is really good. It's really really matters. Um, so basically, I just started my day with Mozart because I was sure Mozart can come first or second round so it's really important and uh, <clears throat> I tried to play to play it really perfectly uh, three times in a row just to be sure I, I can uh, control everything so you can you can take a piece and uh, maybe one minute piece and play it three times in a row it's amazingly difficult actually if to, to get it perfect you always have something happening uh, some a slurt not working or a tone not coming always small details and and I tried really to do it perfectly sometimes in a row and sometimes you need you need 80 times 90 times just to get these three times in a row but it's uh, it's really a good good training, I think. And then I did the same thing with the with the orchestra excerpts. So practicing in in detail two excerpts maximum a day, and just playing the other ones. That sounds like a really slow and intense process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why I need I needed one month because basically basically you always know uh, the pieces. Yeah, I think if you if you ask any students uh, in master somewhere. He already had practiced all the orchestral excerpts 
and Mozart and Weber. So it's it's about to be perfect and to be the the cleanest as possible. Uh, yeah. My follow-up has to do with after you won your position, I bet it was very surreal to walk in as principal bassoon of the Vienna Philharmonic one day. And I'd love to know about actually doing the job. What does your day look like and what are the things, some of the things that you've learned having this position? I learned a lot, uh, really. I learned so much uh, about the sound, about uh, the control of the bassoon. Uh, if I take a question from the beginning, yeah, it was completely surreal, but I had a few months to digest it before I started because the audition was in May and I started on the 1st of September. It was a big step also because I'd never played first bassoon before, so maybe a few few gigs, but actually not really uh, seriously, and I didn't have any experience, so I... I learned so much about playing first bassoon in the in the in the few months of my of my contract, and then I, I'm still learning a lot because I'm surrounded by so many great musicians, and um, sometimes I hear the clarinet playing a solo, and I I think, okay, how how does it do that? And it's amazing, or the flute, or the concertmaster, and I'm always learning, learning, and learning, and. Especially in this orchestra, I think, because we have a, a big, big tradition and really a specific way to play things. You never, you never stop to learn, really. It's, it's every day. Specifically on, on, on the bassoon, uh, you have to, to, to know when you mix, for example, uh, when you are just part of the harmony or you are just uh, in the bass group with bass and cello or you have a solo position and you have to, to, to come out. It's, it's difficult to get at the beginning when you, when you have your music there and you have to analyze a little bit, okay, where am I a solo instrument? Where am I an harmonic instrument? Where am I a bass instrument? And this at the beginning was a little bit difficult for me to, to understand also in the harmony. Do I play the bass or am, I am in the middle? It's a really different way to play. And uh, this is something I, I, I learned in a few months. It's, it's not coming really fast, actually. Mm-hmm. Because you understand the way the orchestra works and the way the music is written, then uh, you learn a, a lot about about the sound. Because sometimes you have to mix. So in Mozart, for example, you have a lot of uh, solos with the oboe, and you play the octave, and um, you're supposed to support the oboe. But if you play too much, uh, then you are not mixing anymore. Also about the sound, because sometimes. Oboe bassoon or clarinet bassoon, this is one plus one and it should sound like one. And this is a new instrument. It's not bassoon or clarinet, it is a new combination. So I think it's, it's, it takes also time because you have to know your, your neighbors. And uh, I know my colleagues and, and some of them have a little bit darker sound. Some of them is a bit brighter and, and then you have to adapt also the intonation is always different and, and this is also really cool because uh, it's 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 making the job really really exciting because it's never the same thing you have always different people and different reactions yeah when we told our listeners that we were going to be interviewing you so many had questions for you that they wanted us to ask way more than we have time for but i wonder if we can start to dig into those now steven wants to know about your experience as a contrabassoonist in the berlin philharmonic and making that transition from contrabassoon to principal bassoon and how those experiences have informed one another. 
I think for me, it was really a good thing to play contribution first because I can now understand my colleagues. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I know a lot of people who are just principal and they start in principal and sometimes it's a bit hard to understand the difficulties of second person or contribution playing. And I think when you did it yourself, you have much more respect. Um, on, a, on a technical aspect, uh, to play the contribution helped me a lot to have a more a sound a little bit rounder to, to give more hair. And this was really good also to, to understand a lot about flexibility uh, in the mouth and the opening and everything. Because bassoon, you don't need to be so much open and as on the contrapassoon and on the contrapassoon you have, you have to give a lot of warm hair and to be really open everywhere. And this is something I learned on the contrapassoon and I, I keep on, 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 on the bassoon. Multiple listeners would love to know about your read style. Ah, I have to, uh, to confess, I don't make my read anymore. <laughs> I buy it. Uh, I think it's 28 millimeters. Uh, it's a tuneman form. I like when a read is really flexible, but I need uh, resistance. Uh, if the read is too easy to play, it's 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 really easy then to play piano and comfortable. But uh, I can't have a, a good sound above mezzo piano, mezzo forte if I don't have any resistance in the read. So I don't like it when it's too too easy to play. I need really a lot of resistance. I I, I prefer to fight a little bit to have really a, a good sound, to work more on the embouchure than, than to play the facility with an easy reach. So, yeah, a lot of wood, some resistance, and uh, not so op- open. Dylan has a really cool question about if you feel that the ensemble changes between the Philharmonic and the opera and if your playing adapts between these two settings. I think so, Yeah. First of all, because at the Philharmonic, we have a lot of rehearsals and at the opera, we don't rehearse. So uh, it's not the same level. You can't expect the same level of the orchestra when you get five rehearsals to a concert or an opera without any rehearsal. Um, the sound in the pit is also really different as on the stage. So the orchestra doesn't sound the same and automatically doesn't play the same way. Also, yeah, when you play in the opera, you are not really the, the main thing. The focus is on the stage. The focus is on singers and the orchestra is uh, just accompanying them. So it's not the same role. Um, it's not so solistic. We are just there to make the singers uh, happy and uh, have the music, really. On stage, it's a little bit different because you have much more con- uh, contact with the public and uh, this is more more an exchange with the public. It's not not only about the music, maybe. The sound is also completely different. You can play much louder. But I think the the orchestra uh, sounds this way also because this is an opera orchestra. So all the musicians are um, used to accompany people and it's not not really solistic. It's really uh, a group, a team working together to serve the music more than one plus one plus one serving uh, himself. Annie's question is, as principal of the Vienna Philharmonic, what aspect of your work do you look forward to the most? Oh, concerts. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's difficult. I love, I, I, I like a lot of things, but I think when I play a Mahler symphony or a big, big symphony, you know, and I'm on stage in the music fair, I have a good 
conductor in front of me and beautiful audience and every musician is just giving his best and and the orchestra is just sounding it's it's not i can't describe it yeah there is nothing better than than, than this feeling and this is what i search always i think this is the best aspect is, is this this kind of concerts baddest one is traveling <laughs> actually i have a follow-up about traveling what are some of your experiences being a member of an orchestra that travels having to deal with jet lag or changes in altitude but jet lag is horrible uh, for me definitely <laughs> really bad at it. i always need to sleep a lot uh we went to Asia last month, for example, for four weeks, and I'm still not recovered. It's not easy, but it's part of the job. And uh, most of the time, the, the first concerts are really difficult. If you come somewhere and you have only one day to adapt, and then on the evening to play, it, it has to work, and uh, it works somehow. I was amazed. Two weeks ago, we did a concert in China. And and we took the train on the morning at eight maybe, and we arrived at the station at at three p.m. We just had one hour in the in the hotel, and then we went to the hall and we rehearsed and we played on the evening, and and the concert was amazing. And I was like, how does everybody to 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 have such an energy? I was completely dead, and everybody just just was on stage, and and it sounded amazingly. I think you can't find so much energy in the music. Michaela would love to know about your approach to memorization. Do you have any strategies or tips that work especially well for you? To learn something, I need to understand the structure. I have both visual memory and, and memory in my head. And uh, I like to, to understand the structure. For example, if I take Jolivet now, I know I have five pages for the first movement. And visually, I know where the, the first movement starts. I know where the, the new tempo is coming. So I have a visual, visual way to see uh, the music. And then um, I start to understand the, the structure. Uh, basically, it's always 8 or 16 or 32 bars. And I take parts. If you take a classical concert, Mozart, for example, you have the exposition, development, then you arrive on the F cadence and then re-exposition going to the end. And to have this split in four parts, it, it helps me uh, to understand. And then to learn it, I just take few, uh, small passages and I just do it again and again and again. And after 50 times, normally it's, it's in, in my head. Maybe for some music you need a little bit more, but I think if you play something an hundred of time, it's in your head. When I play on stage... This is always my biggest fear, just not to remember what's coming next. <laughs> not a good feeling, but this is something we have to deal with. And for this, I always have visually in my head, I know where I am. So I know this is the second page, third line, and I'm going to the fourth line. And second page, I have nine lines or something like that. I just, I just really try to see it in my, in my head. Doug would like to know about your choice to play a Puchner bassoon and your experience in being a Puchner artist. Yeah, uh, I started to play on the first on French bassoon, but it doesn't count one year. And then I moved uh, to a Moosman because uh, the school had a Moosman where, where, where I was learning. Yeah, and then I wanted to, to buy my first bassoon. And uh, I tried a lot of different bassoons uh, from everybody I, I, I met. 
Uh, and I tried Yamaha, Haeckel, of course, Puchner, Fox, Musman. And, and I was really attracted by the sound of a Puchner. I have really the feeling this is the sound I like the most and the flexibility I liked too. So I just, yeah, I ordered my, my, my first Puchner more than 10 years ago. And uh, then, of course, in my uh, my career, uh, I met a lot of people, colleagues also said, yeah, and Haeckel would be better and you have to switch and we'd be better for the sound and everything because this is, I don't know in, in the US, but in Europe, people say if you don't have an Haeckel, you can't get a job or this is really what's the best. So I asked myself a few times, should I switch? Should I try it? And always when I try it, I said, okay, I, I like mine better because I'm used to it maybe also. And because of the sound flexibility, yeah. So I, I just decided to to stay, and and this is really an instrument I I love, and I can do everything I want with it. So I don't I don't see why I should change. And I like also the the fact that I am not really doing like everybody else. I just found myself with this instrument. So I think that everybody should be able to play what what he wants. And this is what I, I, I find so great from the idea is the convention. Every year you can just go and try everything and then have your own idea. It's not because your teacher is playing one one brand that you have to play the same. It's, it's really so personally. I agree. And uh, I think for a very long time, it has been the same in the U.S. that if you are serious, you play on a heckle. But I think things are slowly changing. You have to, to wait 11 years. Personally, I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing in 11 years, but I don't want to, to spend 11 years playing and and think, ah, maybe someday I will have my new bassoon. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I think that's in part because of, you know, people like you or people like Gustavo Nunez who are highly visible, who are making, you know, independent choices about the instruments that they play and the sound they're wanting to achieve. Yeah. yeah. In a question related to equipment, mm-hmm. Celine asks, did you begin with a French bassoon? Yes, I did, but only a few months. <laughs> I played six months, I think, eight months. And then my parents moved in a new town. The teacher was a German bassoon teacher. And he said, if you want to, to learn with me, you just have to change. And for me, it was not a big deal because after six months, uh, it's basically the same. <laughs> so told my, my parents that I, I need a new bassoon. And said, okay, let's ask the school. Alex would like to know what advice you have for American bassoonists who would like to study or play in Europe. Uh, to play in Europe, I think it's good to study in Europe or at least to meet some people in, in Europe. I think, I think the, the, the best way is to meet a teacher from Europe first because if you have a, a contact in person, it's, it's maybe easier to know if, if the, the teacher is good for you or not. Because if you go to study abroad in Europe, then you go you go really for three years at least, and and you need to to find the right teacher that suits you. I think if you want to to work in Europe, if you study, it's easier, and then you have all this academy you can do, and uh, this is really a good a good step in the career. If you if you get an academy job, then it's much easier to get an invitation. Because most of the of the audition in Europe works with invitation system. So if you have uh, an audition, you apply, and and it's quite difficult sometimes to to get an invitation if you don't uh, learn with uh, a famous teacher or in a famous school or university, or if you want 
competitions. So I would suggest really to, just to, to go once again, maybe to the conferences in, in uh, from the IDRS and you have a lot of European uh, bassoonists there and you can meet them and maybe speak about this. Ritika had an interesting question. As one of the youngest principal bassoonists of the world's most renowned and oldest orchestral institution, have you ever encountered any situation in which you are expected to follow a certain style or tradition? And are you allowed to make certain changes according to your preferences? I would say both. Of course, Vienna Philharmonic is this, this is really a, an orchestra of tradition. And I knew it before I, I started there. This is, I think, the most important thing for the musician here is to respect the tradition. But of course, we are not a museum, so we don't play everything like people did uh, 80 years ago, 100 years ago, because it doesn't make sense. Um, so this is always, always uh, a balance between tradition and renewal. So I would say this is like we have rules we have to follow for a lot of things but for a lot of things we are completely free um for example when we play french music or russian music uh, i just do really what i feel because this is not really a traditional repertoire of the orchestra and and they always say french music i know this better <laughs> uh and if i if i play Brahms or schumann or beethoven uh really Mozart, this is this is really something specific in the orchestra, and of course, I just try to play as much as I can in the way of the tradition, because this is also what makes this orchestra really special. And if I say, okay, now I just do what I want, then it could destroy also a little bit this um, amazing uh, sound and and tradition of this orchestra. So this is always a balance between both. We also had many listeners talk about how they view you as such a role model because you are a woman, because you are young and, and because you are doing this position and being a soloist and um, wanted to know, I guess, how you respond to being a role model and you seem to have embraced that. Yeah, I did. I, many of them wanted to hear you talk about being a woman and a, a younger person in the position that you have. My goal is, um, you know, the bassoon is, is such a great instrument, but it's not really on the same level for many people as a clarinet or violin or a cello. And our generation has quite a responsibility to put the bassoon more in the center of, of, of every other instrument. It's not, it's not really, you know, sometimes you say, I play the bassoon, this is what is it? Or even for mm -hmm. music, okay, but it's just bassoon. Right. We have so much work to do to just put it in, a, in, in the right position. It is as good as a clarinet or a oboe or flute. And, and we also have the repertoire. Always I, I hear the same question. Yes, okay, but we don't have so much repertoire. What can you play? And then I, I just say every concertos we have and people are amazed. I think we have to, to promote it. We have to, to make it more popular. <laughs> Uh, and this is the responsibility of people who can do this. And uh, I, I'm, I'm really grateful, actually, to be in the position to move a little bit uh, 
something and I just try to do it as much as I can to, with, with new pieces, but also just to promoting the repertoire we, we have and to fight a little bit. Yeah, it's, it's quite fighting actually for the instrument, but just I wish the best also for the instrument and there's so much to do and this is something we have to. And uh, of course it comes then with, with a lot of different things. Is this viewpoint part of what has inspired you to embrace the internet and technology? You um, post a lot of videos, and I, I think many fellow musicians feel connected to you because of that. Was that your motivation? Yeah, it, is, it was. It was indeed really my motivation. I was at the beginning really against everything I did on that Facebook, Instagram, all, all that, all that kind of stuff. I didn't make recording. It was just, for me, music was really something alive. And then I, I realized, okay, but if I want to move things and also to move my career, it's it's not only just about the bassoon, but it's also in my interest. This is a little bit the way that the world uh, worked now. And I studied it and I noticed uh, the power of 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 this uh it's really a good tool if if you use it properly you can you can do really a lot of things and that's why i just started with videos and because uh, i want to share with everybody and maybe if if uh, if i inspire some people then i'm really really happy about this uh, it's quite uh, the goal actually to share and and to live together with the instrument what is your favorite memory of a past performance after after one concert, I, I met someone and she just said, you made me cry. And I don't know why, because I felt happy. Yeah, maybe the was a great moment because this is exactly what I was trying to do. It's like, I would say maybe eight or 10 concerts a year. I don't know why. I just feel completely different. And then it's it's an amazing feeling on stage. And, and this is special, but I don't know why why these concepts are special. I would anticipate that your life is very busy and that you have to make the most of the practice time that you have. Could you talk to us about practice habits? If you have a particular um, warm-up system that uh, works for you, what does the day-to-day practice reality look like for you? Uh, I am... Um... <laughs> I'm not so consequent anymore. Um, I play every day or mostly every day because I play so much. So I'm fit anyway because uh, I play four or five concerts a week. I'm, I'm always in, in good shape. So I don't need to, to practice so much and, and make so, so much exercises. Uh, basically, I just practice what, what I have to practice for the next concert or next week, next month. And, uh, I just deal with the time I have. I'm not doing so much exercises anymore. Sometimes I, f- I have the feeling I should because in the details, <laughs> it's mm-hmm. controlled. Um, but basically I have, I just have to practice, uh, as much as, as, as I can when I have time. And, uh, really often not enough but <laughs> I don't know if, maybe if I give examples I have tonight I have an opera I will go earlier and I will practice it for 30 minutes just to to check everything I know it already but uh, on the morning I practice the concerto for next month and and maybe on the afternoon I have to, to practice a little bit on the chamber music I have next week and so on and sometimes I just say okay today I just don't do anything but I don't have a regular basis to of, of practicing because it's just 
I, I deal with the programs I have to to practice. Earlier, on the, on the, when I studied, it was of course two etudes a week and and a lot of exercises and one concerto, and was really always the same thing. But now it's a bit difficult. <laughs> Could we maybe have you talk about some of the pieces that you've commissioned and your experiences in that? Yeah, sure. Um, I had for solo bassoon, I had with piano, I had with orchestra. Um, yeah, it's two, two different things. Sometimes you just practice, uh, work with a composer and he's open mind and then you can change a lot of things or you can just show what's working on the bassoon, what's not working in the bassoon. And sometimes I had uh, composers who were just writing something and sending it to me and I was saying, yeah, but this is not playable and, ah, okay, uh, like this. So, you know, it really de- it depends on the on the composer. Some of them are really interested to learn about the instrument. Some of them just want to write something and, and not read. It's always surprising me, but... Uh, I like to do this job. Of course, it's a lot of time. And, and now I receive more and more uh, new compositions. And sometimes I just can't, I can't deal with every everything because uh, if I get a, a new score, I need maybe 20 hours to understand it, to practice it a little bit, to, to really understand the music. And, mm-hmm. and that's why I can't, I can't do the work with everything I, I, I get. So sometimes I just get messages from composers and they say send something and I can't I can't uh, work on it but um I try to to work with uh, composers I know and really on a on a specific project I will do in three weeks a new a new composition for example with orchestra and work with a composer himself and was yeah this is interesting but if you just get the piece and then have to play it it's, uh, it's a bit yeah not so interesting for me then when you feel overwhelmed or like you have just way too much on your plate, um, where do you get your inspiration and, you know, what kinds of activities do you do to refill your well, so to speak? I go in the woods. <laughs> oh, <laughs> nice. I do it quite often. This is something really I need. And uh, I know myself now. I know really when I need it and, uh, I don't don't want to 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 practice like crazy. It's uh, not anymore. <laughs> I really need this, and this is something I do. It's it's really important for the nerves, also. Do you experience nerves and performance anxiety, and how do you deal with that? I know you just did the Rite of Spring like two hundred times or something. Did that get easier over the course of the um, tour? Yeah, but the beginning was like, okay, this is the first time, but, but the second time will be, will be easier. And then when I do it for the last time, I will really enjoy it. And I wasn't. It was always, I mean, I enjoyed it, of course, but it was always really, really stressful. And it was not less and less. It, it just stayed, maybe because of my expectations. And I wanted to make it really as perfect as I can. And then I can't, I know if I'm if I'm not really uh, stressed and, and really focused concentrated then it's for me not a good sign because i think uh, it means i don't care so much and then i don't play so good so i know i have to be focused and yes this is stressful or i I, yeah i have sometimes performances i don't know because of one people in the hall and then I, i i just i just react completely differently I mean, stress is is uh, not always there, but most mostly there, and uh, something I learned to deal with. But I would be afraid if I don't have it anymore. It uh, would not be normal. 
So do you have any advice for, say, some other musicians listening on how to deal with that? Because the expectations for you are very high, and that would be a whole nother thing to deal with. Yeah, I think everybody is different, so I'm not sure I can really help. But uh, for me, what works is um, to be over-prepared. Uh, I know if I practice like crazy, I know, yeah, but can always, always something can happen. But if I practice like crazy, I'm safe. And then I just have to convince myself, yeah, you practiced, so you're safe. So just believe in you and just go. And that's why it it works. I think really practicing is for me the only key and, and maybe to imagine the situation before helps. Do you have time to listen to music for fun? And if you do, what do you listen to? Uh, everything. I'm For fun, mostly my car. I just listen to the radio and then I listen to everything. At home, I like it when it's silent, actually. Mm-hmm. I really like it when, when I don't have any noise and music. Uh, uh, it feels good for my brain. I don't know why. Just resting. I I. I, I don't like to listen music for uh, if I don't listen really. So I prefer silence or listen, but really listen. Then we discussed earlier, kind of uh, how hard traveling can be as a musician. But on the flip side of that, where are some of your favorite places that you have been to by being a musician? I love New York, <laughs> really. <laughs> I think four or five times there, and it's always amazing. Uh, I couldn't live there probably, but I like I like the energy and the activity, and uh, feels amazing. I also like uh, like Japan. Uh, at the beginning, was not big big fan, but you know, I just go and go and go, and then I uh, I meet more and more people. I like I like a lot of people there, and uh, also the big cities like Tokyo. It's just something amazing. I don't know. I went in so many places, beautiful places in, in Norway, for example, in small village in the snow. And this was also amazing or in Argentina in the mountains. And yeah, I'm, I feel really lucky because I, I saw so much things, but at the end, it's always a pleasure to just uh, go through my door and, and be at home. <laughs> <laughs> You're also very active as a soloist as well as in your positions in Vienna. And we had another listener question that asked if you have any plans to record like an album or something like that. Yeah, I have so many plans and always get reported, but I'm I'm sure it will come soon. And I'm working on it now, so I think it will. It's just a matter of time, but I, I feel now in a good good shape and I think this is the right moment to do it. Earlier, I was a little bit afraid because, you know, when you do a recording, then it's it there and uh, you can't change it, so you have to be happy. And uh, I think now, now I'm, I'm ready and, yeah, I'm, I'm working on it right now, so I can't say anything, but I hope it will come soon. Awesome. We do too. What advice would you have for a young musician who would like to have a career like yours? Ah, you need so much luck and uh, so much practicing. Uh, maybe to not have so much expectations and then see what, what's coming. Because if you really want something and you don't get it, then it's it's so difficult, really. Uh, so many people, so, so few possibilities and so much luck. Just see, wait and see and practice. Mm-hmm. 
thank you so much for doing this uh, with us. We really appreciate your time. To close, we would love to hear about things coming up, say in uh, 2020, that you are looking forward to or excited about. Ah, uh, for a lot of stuff. Next month, I'm playing a Beethoven trio with Daniel Barenboim and uh, Emmanuel Pau. So this is something I really expect because uh, to play with Barenboim chamber music I didn't never did and <laughs> something quite amazing I think. Uh, I'm also making the premiere of a double concerto next month in France. So this is something I really expect to. Uh, yeah, so much concertos. I said play Hummel also in in Germany, and yeah, a lot of a lot of uh, nice concerts and hopefully a recording. Sophie, thank you so much. Thank you, thank you for the interview, and sorry for the English. What are you talking? Your English about? is wonderful. <laughs> That interview was amazing. For the next one, you can find us on all of our social media. We do a ton of, you know, notifying and advertising. And sometimes Jackie will even post hilarious videos of me being ridiculous. So go to our Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, email us at doublereaddish at gmail.com. You can listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher. Stitcher. I always forget that one. (laughs) And we love to hear from you. So um, especially all of you who listen all the way to the end. Thank you so much. Hello. (laughs) Jackie, who do we have coming up next? On next episode, we will be featuring an interview with Dudu Carmel, principal oboe of the Israel Philharmonic Orchestra. Gully, it's time to end this nerd parade. Jackie, you have a great job, but go make reads anyway. 